podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the fourth and final part of our Dick Knight specials. Dick Knight box set, you could call them. Um, where we chatted to Dick in the final part of our conversation about the annex and other matters besides. So here it is. Hope you enjoy this. Um, back to you, legend Sir Dick Knight. Where do you want to take it from there? What, what's well, the next story? <laughs> um, here's a bit of a, a, a nice light-hearted story for you. Um, obviously, Mickey, I was very sad to li- let, uh, for Mickey to leave, uh, you know, after his very successful stint as our manager the first time round. But I knew he was ambitious. I also knew that going into Leicester with Harry Bassett, who was then the manager, Mickey was going to be his assistant. That was only going to be for a short while. And indeed, the following season, Mickey led them, you know, Leicester to the championship. We happened to play them the last game of the season at, you know, uh, the Walkers Stadium, as it was called then. And it was the most amazing uh, occasion, really, because, first of all, when the game ended... Mickey spent as much time over with the Brighton fans, you know, who went into a corner where the Brighton fans were, and he was applauding them and they were applauding him, really enjoying the success that he deservedly got, you know, leading Leicester to the premiership. And um, so we, you know, there was about four or five of us Brighton directors at the game, and uh, we all retired into the... um, into the boardroom to let them enjoy the celebrations. Um, and this guy came up to me, one of their directors came up to me and he said, uh, he looked at my seagull badge in my lapel and he said, that's a lovely badge. That is gold, isn't it? And I, I you know, nodded and he said, he said, that's a lovely, he said, are you a member of the local yacht club? <laughs> like, no, this means I'm the chairman of Brighton, the Seagulls. He didn't know anything about they were called Seagulls. I am a member of the local yacht club. Yes, I am. You know, it's called the Brighton Hove Albion Yacht Club. Um, anyway. That's just well known for its yacht clubs, I imagine, as well. Yeah, it's not well known for its yacht clubs, no doubt. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. coastal area and all that sort of I thing. Can, I, can thing. See, I can see, I can see Dick thing. on a yacht actually. I reckon, I reckon he could be a yachtsman. Are you a yachtsman, Dick? Me? Yeah. Uh, well, I did have a yacht. Yes. Ah, uh, uh, there we are. I thought so. That's not <laughs> in Leicester. Anyway, anyway, we're not I'm in Leicester. Clearly wearing, <laughs> I'm clearly wearing a, a seagull's bag. <laughs> you know, my little lapel that I always had. Anyway, uh, but there's actually a postscript to that story, which was, um, so we're all in the boardroom back, you know, just having a coffee or a drink after the game and kind of thinking one day it could be us going to the premiership, you know. But within a few minutes, all of these directors of Leicester were back in the boardroom, you know, and it was like, they just took it. It was like it, what they weren't celebrating particularly. And, you know, I, I thought, I remember saying to our guys, imagine what we'll be doing if we ever get it, get to the premiership or well, when we get to the premiership. Uh-huh. You know, we'll be dancing in the streets for days to come. 
these guys were all so cool about well they weren't cool it just didn't mean very much to them you know mm. and i swear to god they not only did they come back in the boardroom most of them they all left quite soon after that the the, the boardroom was virtually empty apart from four or five brighton directors and one or two Leicester directors, but not the, a huge crowd that you'd expect celebrating promotions of the Premiership. Anyway, that's a story which, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you only get those little observations on the inside, but also, you know, you, you, it makes you wonder why people say football club directors don't know very much about football. <laughs> it, it answers that question. <laughs> Well, all about geography, apparently. Well, uh, yes. <laughs> there weren't many. <laughs> well, we do have yachts off the coast of Brighton, so <laughs> yeah, a lot more than we do off the uh, non-existing coast of Leicester, certainly. I <laughs> know. No. Well, he was obviously, you know, very, um, you know, sort of jealous that I had a yacht club badge, you know. <laughs> anyway, brilliant. So there, so, there we go. Yeah, I mean, it was happy times under Mickey. Yeah, I mean, after Mickey, we had Peter Taylor, we had Martin Hinchwood, Steve Koppel, Mark McGee, Dean Wilkins. Mickey came back, then we had Dean White and Russell Slade completed your your set, um, so to speak. Um, what did you make of all that? I mean, you talked about selling the club. Obviously, getting Peter Taylor in was quite eye-catching after the dis- disappointment of losing Mickey, which we were all gutted about at the time. Um, and he continued things, didn't he, um, during that season? He came in in... Um, October, didn't he? Mid, mid-October of 2001. And completed the job. Got us, got us um, promoted. And um, we've got well, us back-to-back, wasn't it? And great times. What, what did you make of that era? And also well, what happened afterwards? Yeah. What was interesting there was that um, Peter, you know, was a bit of a tinkerer, to be honest. Mm. He wanted to put his own stamp on the team, which is understandable up to a point. But I also... You know, when Mickey left for Leicester in October that season, we were already third in the league or second in the league and, you know, looking like major candidates for promotion. Uh, and he did, and I said, Peter, you know, what you don't need to do, we don't, you don't need to change the way this team plays. We play ostensibly 4-3-3, but actually it's 4-5-1 because the two wide players are often in midfield and Bobby can hold it up on his own, you know. So, you know, and this team knows how to play that system and they play it very well. And there's a lot of players getting forward to support Bobby, either, you know, in the flanks, uh, in the channels, and that's the way we play it. And um, he said, OK, Mr Chairman, you know, and I said, we've got a very strong... Uh, set of players, you know, leadership-wise, they are all uh, leaders in their own way. They're very strong. And, um, you know, uh, the captain, uh, who's also the club captain, Paul Rogers, uh, is a genuine leader, you know, and the players, all the other players respect him greatly. So, you know, what I'm asking you to do is don't muck around with the team too much. Uh, because we don't need it. You know, they would just, they know what their jobs are. Your mm. job is to, you know, sort of nurse the ship forward, um, along the same path that we're already on. 
And uh, he did he did do that largely. He did bring in he tried to bring in a number of players. The only mm-hmm. one that I there were two that he brought in. One was um you know a striker uh called um Danny Webb. And uh Danny was the son of Dave Webb, the former Chelsea, you know, captain and fullback. And um you know, he had a Peter had a real soft spot for Danny Webb, and you know we had, you know we had uh, Zamora, and still, you know, the the Scouser playing off Bobby, you know, and uh, I said with the our, our strikers are they're well good enough for this league, right? <laughs> But he wanted to play Danny Webb and um, Steele got... What was Steele's first name? Remind me. Lee. Lee. Oh, Lee. That's it, Lee. Lee. Lee, who's a real character. Absolute (laughs) wonderful character around the dressing room, around the club. He got a bit annoyed with the manager because, you know, he had to prove himself even more to stay in the team, (laughs) which he did largely. He brought a... Uh, Peter brought in a midfield player called Junior Lewis from uh, Leicester, who was a very, very good player. And he did uh, significantly contribute to the latter third of the season. And he scored a few goals, didn't he? He got quite a few quite important goals as well. Yeah, he, w- he was a real good addition to the team. Uh, I remember him wading through a quagmire at Whitbean against Reading when we actually knocked the spots off them. In the end, it was only 3-1, but it could have been 6-0. And it only they only scored because um, a striker playing for them, you know, called, called, <laughs> called um, Forster, you know, Mickey, mm. Nicky Forster scored this great goal for them. And I saw, I spotted, I, I took, he caught my eye, and I thought one day when we don't have Bobby anymore, I like the look of Forster. He's got, a, you know, the way he took this goal was really good. And of course, mm-hmm. later, you know, several years later, I, I was able to sign him. Um, but anyway, the, so we went to the title second year, two year, two years running, won the league, two years running, league two, and then league one. And, um, Is there only the fifth or sixth team to do it in history of like winning two leagues, one above, one below, going up and then winning the league again ever? Yeah, two successive actual league, yeah. champ, league titles. In different divisions. It was some, it was like a crazy record. Only yeah, five or six or something in history. It was six. And a, yeah. about, about four of those teams were all before the turn of the 20th century. They were yeah. all in the period, you know, in the sort of 1890s or something. And there we were, you know, creating this, um, you know, uh, well, we, you know, we, we didn't do, we didn't break a record completely. But as you say, Peter, there were very few t- teams that have ever done that. I mean, they got promotion in successive years, yeah. but they hadn't actually won the title in successive years. Yes, with playoffs, obviously, promotion in successive years is actually pretty, you know, it's not easy, but it's doable. But to actually win the league both times. And win it with a, you know, t- times of fair as well both times. Yeah. And, and with virtually the same team as, as, uh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, as Russ mentioned earlier, it was virtually the same team. Yeah. That's how good they were. 
Although the, 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 one of my uh, favourite games is where we were missing one of our our favourite players when Zamora was out, and, every, and there was that Colchester program saying he was uh, we were a one man team or something, and then we were three up half an hour. I think it was. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, was that that like, game? That was great. Yeah, I think it was three nil to the one man team for most of the game. Well, yeah, well, we, yeah. Yeah, well, well, we sung that. They did take it in good grace. So yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> well, yeah. with the Paddy's moments in all sorts of strange ways, um, I mean, I always, I'll never forget when we first went there, Lou Macari, you know, we played Huddersfield, who was manager, he was manager of Huddersfield early that first season. And he came into the, uh, he came in the ground and he looked around and he said, is this where we play? Is this the, where the game's played? And, um, you know, um, Mickey, who was the manager then, said, yeah, this is it. This is the bit. He's, he said, it's like, it's like playing a bloody pre-season friendly in Norway. You know? <laughs> or Albania Division 8 as a certain person. Yeah, yeah. Say. Well, you know, we play in, we play in uh, uh, an athletic stadium that we all hate. It's as bad as playing in Albania Division 8. That was one of John Bain's wonderful lyrics, yeah, wasn't yeah. it, from his song. Wonderful uh, stuff, yeah. Brilliant yeah. stuff. I mean, all creative, innovative thinking. Um, and to finish on with Dean, because I have many fond memories of with Dean, but one of my fondest, I think, is the when we thought we'd got the final approval on the stadium, which was in um, 2005 six season hmm. and we'd got through the second public inquiry we'd actually you know john uh prescott had reopened the public inquiry because he wasn't convinced of the findings hmm. of the first one thank goodness uh and um so we got through that second one and therefore you know we thought we were home and dry and i was talking with norman cook uh, a week or so ago about that uh, when we all went down to Donatello's to celebrate and there were pictures of all over the front of the Argus of me and Norman and, and Martin and uh, Mark McGee, who was the manager at that time, you know, all celebrating with champagne all over us. Uh, and, um, and so we didn't know then that the, uh, you know, that Lewis were going to throw their, uh, their final play their final card of taking it to the high court so that appeal took another two years to resolve and it cost us another nearly three million pounds of fees you know absolutely wasted money mm. but when we got this uh, decision out the set you know the, the recommendation of the second public inquiry was that they should be allowed to build at Tharma that was the moment for celebration. We were playing Ipswich that Saturday at home. I said to the board, I've got an idea. Why don't we serve champagne to everyone who comes to the game? Right? No one's ever done that before. And because we only get, you know, we can only hold 7,000, it's not going to cost us that much. But what a lovely touch, you know, because it was, won't be difficult to do. Because all the entrances to the ground were at one end, basically, weren't they? So yeah. we can put all these trestle tables up, you know, buy a few, you know, several crates of champagne and get some flutes, 
which were higher, plastic flutes, champagne flutes, and we'll serve everyone champagne, right? You <laughs> said, you know, you're mad, but why don't we do it? And I said, yeah, because it, 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 I, I'd worked out that it would only co- it wouldn't cost that much, you know, maybe six thousand pounds. But after all the effort had gone in and, and what we'd spent on legal fees, some six thousand pounds didn't sound very much. And um, so we duly did that, and the kids obviously got you know, got squashes and lemonade or whatever. So the chairman of Ipswich turns up in the boardroom, you know, a couple of hours before the game. He says, it's a nice gesture, Dick, you know, that you're doing. This is David Sheepshanks. Who was the, you know, who was the chairman of Ipswich. And he said, um, and I told him the reason why. And he said, it was a great idea. So I said, um, he looked at me. And he said, my, um, you know, one of my partners, one of my uh, the family who own the club, which is this brewing family in Suffolk, hmm. you know, Peter, I can't remember the name of the, of the, of the firm, uh, the company, but it's, he is still, he's a director and he turns up to every game and he, he'll be here soon. So um, <clears throat> let's, um, you know, let's have a little game with him. So he's... <laughs> Comes in and David says to him, Peter, he said, have you seen that champagne that they're served, Brighton served to their fans? So he, he Peter says, yes, what a splendid idea, he said. He was in, he was in his jodhpurs and, it, it, you know, his, <laughs> you know, what do you call it, beer stalker hat. Completely, <laughs> um, you know, different sort of character to the normal football club boardroom and he, and he said, <laughs> said so David said isn't that a lovely thought so, so Peter the, the director the, the old, old timer he said I think we should look into that ourselves we think, you know, I think we should do that every day well wow. he asked me he said, <laughs> said every day I said yes it's pretty easy to do Peter because you know, we only have thousand people here. It's not difficult to do. I think it's a nice way to say thanks to our fans. <laughs> David, you know, we're killing ourselves laughing. Right? And then, and then uh, towards the end, I couldn't let him, I mean, David was going to play the joke a bit more into the following week, but I couldn't, I couldn't, res- I couldn't let him go thinking that, you know, that's what we did. So I'm, I said, um, one thing I need to say to you, Peter, is <laughs> this was a one-off occasion. <laughs> what a shame. He said, hey, Mike, why can't you do it more often? He was like, <laughs> Brilliant. These things that happen in football, you know, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it up. I love that. I very much doubt there's any Ipswich fans listening, but if there is any, they'll be gutted now thinking they missed out. Yes, on they missed out the chance. I mean, <laughs> or maybe I they didn't. Know. Maybe we, maybe we don't know about it, but uh, that, uh, there was a few games. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, yeah, in those have. days, they used to average about 20,000 more than we did. Yeah. You know, they used to average about 26,000 when we averaged six. So I did say to him, it might be a bit more awkward for you to arrange it than just being brassed to it. But, um, oh, it's lovely. Turning a little bit to a, another of every, everyone's favourite memories of Wifteen, but not actually at Wifteen, 
the uh, the day at the Millennium Stadium. What what was your uh, your memories of that day? And also, what sort of, what how big a role do you think that played in the Farmer campaign? Because obviously, seeing the so many fans there must have been a big bonus to you know to back up your like claims of how many fans you could get. Yes, well, we took <coughs> excuse me, we took uh, thirty one thousand to uh, Bristol. Sorry, to Cardiff against Bristol City. Um, but also the fans. I mean, we had all these banners around the stadium, draped around where the fans were, our fans were saying, you know, slogans like, can we have one of these press box? You know, draped around the stadium. Um, and oh, a whole lot of great, you know, great slogans, uh, all of which received massive television coverage, obviously. So that was um, a huge boost to the campaign. Uh, and it was at the right time because, you know, the, the first public inquiry was had finished by then, and um, it was it was it had only finished about three months before, uh, and we were thinking that it was all home and dry until the local plan inspector came out saying they shouldn't be allowed to build uh, build at Palmer. And so we did all these activities then, aimed at from Prescott to, you know, to basically understand that there's huge support for this, for this stadium in Brighton. And we should not be denied it, you know, because of a few people who didn't like the fact that we were going to be near the town. There's no other place to come if you have a stadium in Brighton. It was, it's, it's the sport and health. It's not, you know, I mean, sort of the, the, again, the criticisms that we had from the opponents to the stadium were unbelievable. You know, you, you're, you're going to build a Nazi concentration camp. It's like that type of place is going to be, I mean, it was just unbelievable. The length that people would go to to try and stop it happening. And some of the, what was interesting is some of the, Local politicians who are very much against it. Um, guess who was in the queue? You know, when we eventually got there and started playing there, um, Mr. Knight, you know, could I come to the game? You know, these were some of these people that have been totally against it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, this is a bit like with, we have Martin Perry at Seagulls over London. And I think it was there that he said, I think he's also said this on the Albion Raw podcast, um, that he, when they had the planning application for the hotel, they tried to um, to get that through, and that's the only apparently the only thing that Martin Perry hasn't managed to get through in the planning process. And um, apparently the councillors were saying, "Well, no, we don't want that hotel there because it will block our view of the stadium." Yes, that's true. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? I mean, I think that the uh, yeah, uh, that is true. That's absolutely true. They they said that, or well, one of the idiots did. I mean, then you know they're not. Sorry, one of these guys who's rather foolish or a lady who yes. made this comment. But um, I think that you know the the club was used to getting um, these things through, and uh, unfortunately, you know that didn't come off, which is a shame because the club would have. It would have been a useful place to have a nice hotel, but the yeah. fact is that what we've got now at the stadium is the fact that 
you know, much more relevant and more important is the fact that the car park, the main car park can't be used at the present time. And I, I hope the club can resolve that because it really is, uh, mm. you know, I, when I left, I, I remember saying to Martin, you know, we need to buy that piece of land. You need yeah. to, you know, we need to make sure that's covered. Um, and unfortunately, I think the, you know, the owner of the land was not happy to sell it. And, uh, anyway, it's unfortunate that the club is now, you know, it's almost like a ransom strip, which is being applied against the club. And, uh, it, it needs to be resolved in a sensible, amicable way. Cause this, you know, the, it's not really fair that the, that there's virtually no parking at the stadium apart from the Sussex, you know, university car park. Um, so anyway, it's, it's one of those things that, but the battle for this, for that stadium was, there was a, it was the only football stadium in the history of football that had a history before the, the a ball was kicked. The battle for it was a story in itself. And, uh, you know, frankly, it, it, the chapters that were written about it before we actually played a game, but at the same time, imagine we played, it was 14 years between the last game of the Goldstone and the first competitive game yeah. at the Amex. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have made that up. And I come from a world of, you know, fantasy in advertising. That's one of the things you create is fantasy. But if I'd put that together in a script, people would have said, don't be ridiculous. How could it be 14 years before you get to a new stadium? It's like you talk about that that Ipswich game. It was five and a half years till we played the first game at the MX after that. You know, we think it should um, start, you know, going to be, we're not not right there, but obviously we could start building soon and that sort of stuff, sorting stuff soon. It was five and a half years later before we actually got to play at the MX. I mean, you know, the Lewis, uh, uh, attempts to block it, Lewis Council attempts were really quite desperate and, um, they did not consult their residents over it. Um, and I suppose that's what they have councillors for. But at the end of the day, it cost the residents of Lewis, you know, quite a lot of money because they, you know, in the end, they backed down because they knew they weren't going to win the case. And, they, uh, they also lost the money they'd have got from matchday income because Lewis makes a lot of money as a place out of Brighton home games. Of course, absolutely. They, they, they lost two or three seasons of that probably as well. The, the shops and the restaurants and the cafes and pubs of Lewis lost a lot of money out of people. I mean, I go to Lewis for games because it's easy to get to the to the Amex from Lewis and Brighton. There's yeah. a lot of Albion fans and away fans around there. Pubs are always busy, restaurants. There's never any trouble. It's just... And it's thriving, isn't it? Oh, yes, I was yeah. down there at the weekend, actually. It's a thriving yeah, place we, now. You know, we've yeah, made yeah. all those economic points to them, but they mm. weren't interested. It was, yeah. they just had this vision of rampaging hooligans, you know, rampaging yes. through the high streets. Yeah. The irony is that any of the very few rampaging hooligans all go to Brighton anyway. No, you don't get many hooligans heading to Lewis for a kind of, to meet up with other hooligans. No, it's just out on Friday night instead. Any, any yeah. trouble goes, goes on in Brighton normally or, yeah the ground or something. I, mean, I, I don't know I don't know Dick if it's more frustrating or less frustrating for you compared with the uh, the so-called average fan in terms of that whole planning process because I mean on the one hand you're proactively trying to get these things done 
and you're being scuppered at every turn by, you know, planning inquiry officers uh, reaching bizarre conclusions and local councils throwing spanners in works. You've obviously, you're the man hands-on who's trying to negotiate all those difficulties. I don't know if that's more frustrating because you're hands-on or whether it's more frustrating for us fans who are obviously recognising the same problem but are helpless. I don't, I don't know. I just well, found it such an intensely frustrating period. Well, it was. So agonising. It was, Russ, but, you know, we were, don't forget that Martin and I were, you know, leading that campaign. We, we were leading the battle, uh, you know, administratively in terms of dealing with the council and all the experts, uh, you know, that we had to consult mm. with. Um, but the fans were involved. The Farmer for All campaign played a very important role in the ultimate victory uh, because the Farmer for All uh, group, we, of which Martin and I sat on that committee, but we weren't the only executives on it. Paul Samra was the chair of it, you know, and uh, John Bain, Liz Costa, a whole range of people, Bill Swallow, Jan Swallow. There was a whole range of people that worked on that committee and they were all actively involved. And, of course, we would have regular meetings with them, uh, probably at the height of the activity, virtually one every fortnight. Um, and it went on for literally for months, that. So they were, um, you know, they were certainly, uh, it was being well reported locally. And, of course, a lot of people, they were telling their friends and, and what was going on and how we were being thwarted. Yeah. Um, and of course I used to write and Martin used to write in the program regularly, you know, what was going on and what we are, what we'd like you to do now is that, you know, write here to, and here's a draft letter to send to your local council. All of that went on, uh, with the help of that fantastic committee of devoted Albion fans yeah. who should always be remembered as, you know, as an important part of that. Battle for the stadium, very important part of it. Absolutely. It was a, a wonderful story of, of determination and resolution against almost unprecedented set of, of um, circumstances that were against it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember getting Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Darlington, QPR fans all writing in letters, you know, with that one where it said, it's not in the greater public interest, that conclusion. You know, there was a, there was a response, wasn't there, where we all sent stuff in. And I, I know loads of other people besides did the same thing. And the, the planning application, I mean, apparently it's the longest in European history for a sports stadium application yeah. um, by yes, some distance. Uh, it's incredible. Well, we went, we went from February 03, 2003, which is when the first public inquiry started to October 2006. So that is over three and a half years mm. through the two public inquiries and then the appeal from Lewis. So all of that cost money, huge amounts of money that should have been going into the actual building of the stadium <laughs> and the building of the football team, of yeah. the team itself. But, you know, we had to, we spent in total around 14 million pounds to get that stadium. Not building the stadium, you know, about getting the stadium yeah. in terms of all the fees 
we have to pay to all sorts of consultants. Uh, you know, the lawyers made an awful lot of money out of that, which they always do, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, any lawyers listening, they <laughs> know what I mean. Uh, you know, it's necessary, but it, you know, the amount of red tape, and we, we knew that there were people out there looking for the, the slightest slip up that one of our, uh, representatives might make, yeah. you know, in the legal side of it. Uh, and indeed there was a mistake in the first, um, you know, public inquiry yeah. approval. One bit of wording, wasn't it? The second approval, uh, the, the second, uh, appeal, second public inquiry approval letter contained an error in it, which was simply an administrative error by someone in the home office or, you know, the cultural office or the, com- the community office in the government had typed this wrongly and the Lewis people picked up out their boundaries and what part of the stadium was in their boundary and wasn't. You know, and it was picked up. It was a, this is a huge letter of approval in going to 60 odd 70 pages. And, you know, later on in the report, there was a typo that said something different that had said, than been said earlier. And that was picked up. And that's why they went to appeal. You know, it was absolutely unbelievable uh, what we had to go through. Um, so all that champagne that was sucked. <laughs> you know, a few days before at Donatello's and then at the Amex, sorry, at the, um, Whitten. was welcome, but wasted. <laughs> <laughs> well, we enjoyed it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone enjoyed it, but I must say, you know, it was, I tell you, we had some empty feelings. I always remember, I mean, I was talking to Norman Cook about this literally a couple of weeks ago. That how down we all felt, yeah. you know, when that, uh, when they picked up this, this error in this, and they, here we go again, you know, we're going to have mm-hmm. to go to the high court this time. And it was, for me, it was, it was about the money that it was going to cost, but it was about the time. It was dragging on. You know, it went on and on. And, you know, this is why. And then I did the deal with American Express on the stadium naming rights in June 2008, right? Oh, this is a, a year after we'd got the final approval of the stadium. Yeah. So I did the deal, you know, with American Express, but it had to go on ice immediately because, you know, they told me that there's going to be a worldwide credit crunch coming up. Yeah. Later that year, in September, literally three months later, you couldn't so, make it up, could you? This it it's, all the timing is ridiculous. On ice. You know, and I, I, you know, this is why, in a sense, Tony took over what he did because, you know, he said, I'll make good any shortfall. Yeah. Um, because we'd already banked, you know, we had bank loans, but also the, the Amex deal was like, you know, writing a check sort of thing for the stadium. It was a long term deal. And, but nevertheless, I said to the board, you know, we can't risk starting building the stadium with um, any sh- if there's any shortfall, um, and this credit crunch could could create that situation. Tony came along and said, "I'll make do, I'll make good any shortfall, and I would like to become the chairman now." And I I was 
bit shocked by that because I was, you know, it's kind of my project and we've mm. been pushing for it all the time. But I also knew that, that this was the opportunity for the fans didn't have to wait even longer, mm. you know. So yeah. I agreed with Tony that I'd stand down. But it was, uh, it was a whole set of issues. I mean, if that typing error hadn't been in that letter in 2007, we would have been into that ground two years earlier. We yeah. would have avoided the credit crunch. Yeah. We would have had the building going on during the credit crunch. Or even yeah. more so if the first planning inspector had been more impartial and actually given, actually not been given the wrong decision. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, again, I may have said this before in the previous uh, episode of this long discussion that we're having, but um, John Prescott told me after it was all over, you know, after the second inquiry had finished, after the appeal had been finished, and we eventually got the green light from Hazel uh, uh, Blears, who was the community minister, you know, by that time they'd replaced John Prescott. Um, that letter came in <coughs> July 2007, you know. Uh, but, you know, we would have been into that. Uh, we should have been into that two years earlier. The deal that I did with the American Express would have been two years earlier and everything would have been two years earlier. Yeah. And they, we wouldn't have been affected by the credit crunch as we were, but Tony was there to, you know, make sure that we didn't have a further delay on top of all these other delays. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's, that's what happened. And it was a saga. Mm. Um, I mean, I look 80 odd, which is what I am, but I'm actually now I'm, I'm only 38. <laughs> Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't those, be surprising. Those furrows in my brow, uh, everyone is a planning application rejection. <laughs> planning application furrow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the end, the story fits together, doesn't it? I think the fact that Tony's able to, to help out on that last leg of the journey, great. It just, it, it was a relief that that was able to happen. And for everything, that all the effort you put in through all those years, it would have been a tragedy if somehow it had been felled at the you know the, the last hour and yeah. so i mean all of it in the end fitted together but it is an incredible story and well, uh, one that will endure yeah i think uh russell the the point is it just shows that determination can yeah. win out in the end it was a bit like my battle against archer he thought mm. he you know he thought he could see me off uh but I'm a determined character. And when you've got a lot of people working with you who are equally determined as I was with the battle for the stadium, then in the end, we knew that justice had to prevail. You know, that you couldn't have hundreds of thousands of people writing in, sending in their names in petitions, and then some bureaucrat say, no, they can't have it. And, of course, now the Amex is... You know, is it is accolades for it. We won in almost the first year of it being built, we won this design award for the best looking stadium in the world. Yeah. You know, and that's in Brighton, folks. Yeah. That's where it should be. 
you know, not in Gatwick, which some people would have had me play at Gatwick <laughs> or New Haven. No on the runway. Next to those places. <laughs> on the runway. Yeah. I mean, the, the Design Award, wasn't that the one where it was um, presented in Turin and Juventus were uh, rivals for the award and they lost out to us, literally on the home territory? Yeah. Uh, was, that, was that one thinking of? Yeah. That was great. Well, it was, it was a, a, you know, an international design award. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, but I, their stadium, you know, the, uh, it wasn't a complete rebuild. I mean, Oh, you might have to lean into the, lean into your computer there a bit, Dick. I think you've oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Say that last bit again. Sorry about the award. I was again. saying that the Juventus stadium was a rebuild of, on the existing site. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, stadium, um, the Apoli, you know, I think it's yeah. the Alps, the Alpi, the Stadium Di Stadio Alpi, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, whereas ours was a complete new build, of course, but, um, yeah, we should be proud of, you know, I wasn't going to have four, Mar- you know, four sheds around a football pitch. Martin and I were determined that we would have a great design stadium and, uh, coming from, uh, my background, you know, I was more interested in designing, having something designed that was very unlike any previous stadium. I mean, I said to the architects, you know, when we first sat down with them, probably the first or second meeting, imagine, you know, what I want is a, um, a, a stadium that is, uh, the first, oh God, what's the architect? I'm ruining my own story by forgetting the name of it. Henry Moore. Oh, Henry yes. Moore, the sculptor. I said, mm. I want the first Henry Moore-looking stadium in the world. I want all – we want curves everywhere. We don't – apart from the only straight lines we want are on the pitch. So it's got to uh, reflect the – you know, the landscape and the, and the sculpture of the la- surrounding hills – and that's what we want. You know, that's the type of look of the stadium. And of course, if you look, and I've got in my briefcase sitting over there, you know, in my house here, and dr- the original drawings we had of that stadium, and I tell you, you'd recognize them immediately because there's hardly anything changed in the reality of the stadium as opposed to initial, you know, embryonic drawings. I don't know if there's anything in this stick, but I've always thought from certain angles, the stadium um, looks like with the the white steel, it looks like um, the traditional basic design of a seagull. Was that, is there anything in that? Do you know what I'm talking about? With the the curves? Not really. It was more to, you know, that, that, well, good thinking. It's a happy one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that you've drawn that conclusion, Russell. You're the only person that has my. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I I don't know why more people haven't, to be honest, because I can see what you mean exactly. But, you know, for me, what was vital was that we didn't need to have it precisely the same on either side. It's got to follow the land, the curvature of the land. So, you know, the West Stand, you know, that we now have in the stadium, is much bigger than the East Stand, and that's because of the curvature of the Earth there. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, we 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 broke uh, ground in that stadium in December 2008, 
And if you looked at the ground then, you know, the, the surface we were breaking, you, you looked around and thought, how on earth are we going to build a stadium here? Because it was so confined in many respects. Yeah. And it was so made up of different, a patchwork of different sort of bits of landscape that, you know, it was a miracle in a sense, but that's what you do with modern design. You know, you make it work. And uh, <laughs> I always remember, you know, the opening day, the first digger going in in December 2008, they had, we had a spot in the, in the, where the, it was being built, um, where the digger was starting, which was the actual penalty spot oh, yeah. for the North Goal. Right. And, um, no, actually, sorry, it's the South Goal. But that's the very spot where the penalty is, spot is. So they got me to take a penalty kick there on that spot. And they put these two big mechanical diggers, you know, <laughs> arms like that. Yeah. So they went like that. So they made this huge goal and I still missed. <laughs> Your Diana Ross moment, was it? <laughs> yeah, I, I hit the, I hit the stanchion. You know, we thought about taking penalties for Albion these days. Yeah, well, <laughs> do better than average if you hit yeah. if you hit the bar. <laughs> Martin came along behind me. He's hardly ever football in his life. He was a rugby man, I think, when he was at school. Slotted into the right corner in a perfectly positioned penalty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As so I did, I did a, uh, I blazed it over the bar like Kepa Kabolka or whatever his name is, the Chelsea <laughs> Kepa, you know, the Chelsea yeah. recently. That one's still right. travelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm conscious of time. I know you, you want to get your dinner in in a minute, Dick. So I'll, I'm just found really round this up. I think by asking you, well, a couple of a couple of quick fire questions. A friend of mine you were coming on here, John Orchard, and he asked you to say, do you know where the, the FA Cup final money is? <laughs> it's a running joke everyone always asks. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there was someone on North Stand chat who used to keep, who used to keep accusing me of taking the money. I mean, what <laughs> I, I the think hell is that all about? I think it's a was, running joke going on. Yeah. Well, well I know, but it didn't, it didn't make, it frankly annoyed me because <laughs> You know, it's as if I had anything to do with the club at that time. <laughs> I know I'm old, but I wasn't Not, involved. No, exactly. I was just yeah. a fan. And you better ask, um, you know, the people in charge of the club at that time. Definitely. Um, just an innocent think, fan. I don't yeah. think many of them are alive today. So. <laughs> yeah, it's probably it's probably gone down with, with somebody, hasn't it, that one? Um, you're certainly an innocent fan in that one. Were you innocent in regards to the damage to the uh, playoff trophy? We've got to ask you that one. <laughs> no, I wasn't innocent. Um, I, <laughs> hands up on that one. Well, I kind of slightly was innocent. Well, it depends. Damn it. You know, I was down. Uh, they were on uh, up on the uh, the team were receiving that trophy, you yeah. know, which looks good from a distance, but it's virtually made of papier-mâché, you know, <laughs> silver and gold papier-mâché. Anyway, um so Danny, they're all up on the pedestal, you know, on the dais, and there's lots of uh, bunting coming down and all that. And Danny saw me standing just in front, you know, away from the, not actually on the dais. And he came over and he said, here you are, Mr. Chairman, you deserve this. And he gave it to me. 
and unfortunately, we between us, we dropped it, right? So it went down, hit the edge of the um, of the platform, and bent. So when I picked it up, it was like that. <laughs> you know, Sorted it angle here. We're, so we're it demonstrating. Was at, it was at um, diagonal that the handles, <laughs> rather than being straight. You know, um, Michelle Kuipers, who didn't play that day, Ben Roberts was in goal. I remember. Um, Michel, who's a strong lad, you know, I mean, it isn't made of papier-mâché, it's made of metal, but it's not, you know, it's not really... He was able... He he grabbed this thing, because I was starting to walk around the stadium with this stupid little... (laughs) He grabbed it, and he bent it back, straight, you know, under his arm, virtually. So the rest of the celebratory walk was me holding it up, you know, shoulder high sort of thing, um, was successfully completed. Other than, otherwise, there would have been a lot of embarrassment on my face, you know, because I could see how ridiculously bent it was. <laughs> Again, it all just it all just adds to the occasion, doesn't it? Really, yeah. Um, and I, I think just finally for me, uh, I don't know, Peter, if you've got any other questions as well, please feel free. But I was just going to say favourite moments from the Whitley era. Uh, and from the Amex era, um, as a fan, as a chairman, however you want to phrase the question. Well, I think that's a, that's that's too much to talk about in one go. <laughs> well, it sounds like we'll have to get you back on. <laughs> invite me back. No, because yeah. the other thing that I'm quite happy to talk about is my views about football today. So yeah, well, in good. a direction. Let's go uh, to that then. Hmm. I'm I'm um, involved in football at a strategic level uh, now uh, involving all the European leagues, you know, and it's about um, financial governance, really. I, you know, when Berry went under, uh, a lot of people came to me because they knew that, you know, I've been able to help save the Albion. And they, you know, it was too late. Berry, the football league really didn't know anything about really what was going on at Berry. And, um, it made me resolve. I started thinking about it that we've got to stop this happening, you know, in the future. <coughs> and if you think, when you think that a club like Derby County, who have won, you know, English Division One, they've won it. They've won the Premier League effectively. It's mm-hmm. now in a situation where it could go bust. You know, it could go out of existence because of, you know, mismanagement of the club, uh, on the, off the pitch, not on the pitch. And, um, you know, that's just a, a really bad indictment of the way the leagues are run. They're not controlled. You know, the clubs are, uh, they're not they're not properly governed in that sense financially. So, you know, I'm working on this project today, which I have been for a year or so. Um, and we're working with a number of European leagues. We're working with the EFL. We're not, we're not working with the Premier League because we don't need to work with the Premier League. They don't have that problem. Uh, but every league from the championship down does have that problem of being at risk of going out of business and it's exacerbated now by the effects of COVID, you know, with the lost gate receipts. Um, 
So it's, it's a big, it's a big issue. And, um, in a way, ironically, the Premier League is probably as much a cause of it as anything. Because, I mean, Derby, for example, are, you know, I know they've not been in the Premier League for 13, 14 years, but their attempt to get in the Premier League has caused them the problem, a lot of the problems they have today. Yeah. Well, that is, you know, that's this huge gold beater between, you know, the Premier League and the rest. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, um, owners, chairmen, uh, overstretch in their desire to reach the promised land. Um, and unless you've got big pockets, um, you know, you're going to, you, you get a lot of money, well over 150 million, you know, just by being in the league, in the Premier League. But if you've overspent to get there, <coughs> excuse me, mm. and you're committed to big player wages, you know, that is a recipe for ultimate disaster. Yeah, and that's for the fan running the club. It's not even a sinister aggressor, so to speak, is it? That's someone who's trying to do something for the club they love, and it's all gone wrong. And well, there's a whole long story to Mel Morris and Derby. We won't go into here, but um, you know, even even with perceived fans in charge, <laughs> it can go wrong. Thankfully, it hasn't for us. We've had we've had you and we've had Tony, and it's it's been great. But for other clubs like that, it could show it shows how it can still go wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's so, money, there's so much money at the top of football. Hmm. One of the issues should be that it, sh- you know, more of it should be allowed to filter down, hmm. <laughs> so that the pyramid is properly protected. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. if you look at the money that put both Barry and especially Matt <clears throat> down went out of business for five hundred thousand. When you consider yeah. what pay for in the Premier League, it's obscene that a whole club, a you know, a, a huge part of a local community. Has lost their bail out business because of that sort of money in a sport where you know clubs get 150 million a year for for TV rights and you know kind of it's just yeah. Well, they you know clubs like Man United get three million from gate receipts for a match. You know, so I mean it's all in scale, of course, but the fact is that you know clubs with wonderful histories, Bury won the FA Cup. You know in. 1906, I think. I remember it well, actually. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry, Rush, uh, you're a bit quiet, quick, you're a bit slow there. I was a bit I'm slow about that one, wasn't I? No, that Berry, you know, seriously, were I think founded members of the Football League, and they certainly yeah. Yeah. played in the Cup final. I think they had a record Cup win, didn't they, at one point? <laughs> and they, they also have been like, yeah. in order to be recent, in time I started watching the Championship side. No, it's not like they've been down the bottom division or something. Right. No, and, and this is, you know, you mentioned it, Peter. The really important thing is the role these clubs play in their communities. Yeah. And uh, this is why, you know, when I took over at Brighton, I was absolutely determined to make sure that the club gave a lot back to the community uh, and use the power of football, you know, to benefit people in all sorts of different ways. And uh, I think that, you know, Albion in the community is a wonderful uh, role model for other clubs to follow because, you know, we have done some exceptional things at Brighton. And I think that, you know, it's just a, a part of what football means to the world. You know, it, it's so important as a, as a sport and as a pastime, as a hobby or a passion, depending on your 
you mm. know, or an obsession. Uh, you know, it is, it meets so many people and gives them pleasure that, you know, it is, it needs to be encouraged in the right way. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I won't go into it here, but I think the European Super League will happen, uh, eventually and not too distant future. But I've got, you know, thoughts about that, but um, if anyone wants to listen, to me rambling on about that, I'm very happy to talk about it yeah, sometime in the near future. Yeah, we'll maybe save that one. Hmm. But right yeah, now, I've got a few thoughts on the European Super League as well. Yeah, hmm. we've got quite a few thoughts on that, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's worth having a discussion about it hmm. because, let's face it, you know, if certain things hadn't had happened, which they didn't the first time round, hmm. that could be happening that yeah. week. Yeah. Um, oh, again, it's um, it's down to hand power, isn't it? Yeah. and Juventus, and uh, they've, they've, they've never uh, given up. But the, the yeah. fan power has at least staved it off for a while. Again, it's it's about the fan power in terms of being able to make a difference. Um, going back to your thing about communities, um, whether it's a Bearmoth club in a massive city, or it's one man and a dog watching a game or 50 men and a dog watching a game in a village somewhere, communities matter. And I think when it goes to the big scale and it's stuff like this, European Super League, the, the arrogance and the greed and the ulterior motives of Juventus, Real and Atletico in particular, and Barcelona in particular, are, um, well, vile, in my opinion. I, I, I cannot abide it. But unfortunately, I, I do agree with you, Dick. I think it probably will happen in some form or other at some point. Because it's a power, it's a power there's struggle, also, isn't it? There's also another part of me that says, you know, the big six leave, it'll be, it's as long as they leave the Premier League as well and they go and do their own thing. It could even be English champions one year. It'll be a much that. more interesting league, <laughs> won't it? Yeah, well, it won't be just like only three or four teams can win anything. Actually, a lot of teams could win the Premier League. It might I'll be. I'll tell you next time, I'll tell you how it can be done. Hmm. Intriguing. That's a that's an intriguing note to finish on, I think. So um, only because I'm aware of all the, you know, I'm aware of where the uh, the loopholes are, for example, in terms of the way it could be uh, mm. manifested. The thing is, it's all driven by television money. Yeah. It's all driven by that. And you know, if you know, guys, you're running a podcast. This is brought to the listeners via um, various media platforms, one of which is streaming. And, you know, that's the future of football broadcasting is streaming. And that, that it's hardly scratched the surface financially of that, you know. And that's where, you know, these multi, uh, these huge merchant banks in Wall Street will see huge business opportunities. They they see football clubs like they would look at Disney or Amazon Prime. That's how they see them. Because they can be an entertainment conglomerate under that brand name of the of the club. I mean Manchester United being the most obvious one, uh it's the biggest sports club in the world, bar none, you know, in terms of none of the American uh, NFL, American football, you know, American football team anywhere near the global reach of Manchester United. Um, but there's, and there's huge money 
in in building those franchises, what they would call them franchises. Uh, so, yeah, bigger is not necessarily best, is it? That's it ain't going away, guys. I'm afraid. No, no, that's it. Yeah. Oh well. On okay. that on that, on that delightful note, we'll round off. But no, I mean, Dick, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you back on. We've yeah, enjoyed so the much, last Dick. conversation. We've enjoyed this conversation probably even more, haven't we, Peter? I think. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So over these two well, episodes, um, it's been it's been great to, to be hearing your thoughts on on all things Albion. As you said in the previous conversation, it's it's good to document as much as we can. I think getting voices on the air has been part of what this podcast has been about, um, whether they be just ordinary fans or people yeah. like yourself who've got a significant part in our history as a club. Um, but I think all of those voices are important, very much not least yours, because uh, what you've got to say, obviously, is is really interesting and it's, has got a great deal of insight. And it's been a pleasure to have you on talking about the history of this club, this modern era, and... Um, I think you've set, certainly set the groundwork for what we're now enjoying today. And certainly Tony has taken on the mantle and fair play to him as well. But it's all come from that era, hasn't it? And I think we've all grown together as a club um, through adversity. And, um, and you were in charge during that period. Um, <laughs> quite, a, quite a story, as we said. And well, it's think, one, one to endure. Adversary builds uh, bonds that are hard to I mean, look at what's going on in, you know, in Ukraine. The people oh, are so yeah. determined uh, that they, you know, they're going to, you know, they will survive because they're so determined. Yeah, and it's remarkable. Isn't I mean, in a day. different scale of things, but nevertheless, the same human resolution to achieve something yeah. is there. Is what we're seeing in in, in Ukraine now. Uh, I, I, I'm not trying to make a direct comparison, but. What we, what we, the reason of Brighton Football Club is such a strong entity today is because of that adversity that we all went through, that so many fans went through. And I'm glad that their children, you know, are able to just enjoy the Amex and what goes with it, Premier League football, et cetera. <clears throat> but, you know, it, it, the adversity that we went through made us much stronger as a club, without a doubt. And, and people remember that. And let's hope that through media and platforms like yours, that that's never forgotten in the club, you know, because you, you almost need that to have a, an injection of, of revitalization, revitalization of a club where everyone pulls together and does something special, you know, and that's what happened with Brighton, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me on, guys. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on. It's been, yeah, been both, well, all of it's been amazing. Both episodes, recordings we've done have been so good. Yeah, so thank you very much indeed, Dick. And it just leaves us to sign out now with our usual sign-off. So, Peter, stand or fall? Up the Albion. See goals! (laughs) Sports Social Podcast Network.